one of the most destructive forces in all of the world is pride. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Uh, Pride is the only disease known to man that makes everybody sick except the one who has it. Here's a case in point. Over 50 years ago in 1971, there was a fight that was dubbed the fight of the century between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. Before the fight, Muhammad Ali said these words. There seems to be some confusion. We're going to clear up this confusion on March 8th. We're going to decide once and for all who is king. There's not a man alive who can whoop me. I am too smart. I am too pretty. I am the greatest. I am the king. I should be a postage stamp. That's the only way I could ever get licked. And boy, did he get licked. Famous last words. Pride is the oldest sin in the universe, and it shows no signs of weakening with age. It's what kicked Lucifer out of heaven. It's what drove Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. It's what's about to dislodge Nebuchadnezzar from out of his kingdom in Babylon. C.S. Lewis called it the chief cause of misery for every nation and family since the beginning of time. And Nebuchadnezzar wanted to get that message out to as many people as possible, that he was once prideful and lifted up, and that he had come to his senses. So after this dramatic event occurs in Daniel chapter 4, it totals eight years. He sits down in his right mind to write to the people of his kingdom. And I want you to notice his conclusion, and then we'll go back and look at the story. In verse 37, he says, those who walk in pride he is able to put down or to humble. Well, if pride is your greatest enemy, then humility is your greatest friend. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. I read an article about a study that was done on how people view themselves versus how others who observe them view those same people. It was a study that was done at the University of California at Riverside, and a group of students rated themselves as cheerful, warm, and intelligent. But observers saw them as hostile, deceitful, and condescending. Do you want to know what the name of the article was? Get this. Study says jerks have too much self-esteem. We're about to read of such a one in Daniel chapter 4. Once again, Nebuchadnezzar had no problem at all with self-esteem. We know that because in chapter 2, after seeing a dream, he was very impressed, but he went back to his old behavior. In chapter 3, he built a statue in his honor, commanded everyone to bow down. Three refused, and they were miraculously delivered. Once again, Nebuchadnezzar is emotionally awed by that, but he goes back to his old ways. This seems to be what gets his attention once and for all as he sits down and writes this. So first, I want you to notice, first of all, the revelation of a powerful king. The revelation to a powerful king. We're going to begin reading in Daniel chapter 4, verse 19. And would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, remember that's his Babylonian name, 
was greatly perplexed for a time. Now, here's what's happened. Earlier in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream, and he calls in his Babylonian advisors to interpret it, but none of them can. So he calls in Daniel, and Daniel knows exactly what it means. So Daniel was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty. And this is the decree that the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. You may be seated. May God add this blessing to his word. So evidently, as soon as the king tells his dream to Daniel, the king could read Daniel's face. This isn't good. It says he was perplexed. The, the word there is appalled. Because Daniel knew instantly what this dream meant. He was perplexed because there's nothing worse than having the most powerful man in the world lose his mind. And the implications of that troubled Daniel. Now, this reveals something to me. Daniel does indeed reveal truth to the king. He doesn't hold back. He told him exactly what the interpretation meant. But the fact that he was perplexed and he said, oh, I wish this didn't apply to you, your majesty, shows you that though Daniel proclaims judgment on the king through God's revelation, that he loved this king and he didn't want these things to happen to him. There was this relationship that had developed between the two of love and care that though Daniel tells him the truth, his heart is troubled because of it. And all true servants of God are like this. No authentic servant of the Lord relishes God's judgment on unbelievers. Uh-huh, yeah, you just wait till you get yours. That's not the attitude. We should never proclaim doom with a smile. When Jesus saw what was happening to Jerusalem, he wept over the city at its coming judgment. Daniel says, your majesty, you are that tree. Nebuchadnezzar gets this big lump in his throat because he knows what's about to happen. The tree gets chopped down. A stump is left protected for a period of time. Often in the Old Testament, the metaphor of a tree represents a powerful ruler or a nation, usually one that's prideful. 
If you want to write down a couple of references to look at that, Isaiah chapter 2, Ezekiel chapter 17 and 31, Zechariah chapter 11, Hosea chapter 14, all use the imagery of a tree that refers to an individual or a nation. The tree that's chopped down here speaks of the disgrace and the removal of King Nebuchadnezzar who will be left as a stump. In other words, God is not done with him yet. He will eventually reign again. King Nebuchadnezzar is listening to all this. He's getting information. He's getting revelation. But what's happening to Nebuchadnezzar happens to everyone who hears the gospel. Whether they hear it through someone's personal testimony or through sitting in a church service or a retreat, through a YouTube video, or maybe reading scripture, when they get the revelation of the gospel, that Jesus loves you, and he died on the cross for your sins, and if you receive him, you can have eternal life. At that point, like Nebuchadnezzar, they have a decision to make. They will humble themselves and receive it, or they will puff themselves up in pride and say, I don't need that. And what I like about Daniel is that once he gives him the information in verse 26, he doesn't stop and say, and now may the Spirit of God apply this to you. No, he takes another step from revelation to confrontation. Notice, secondly, the confrontation to a vulnerable king. He presses it a little bit further. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr says, man does not know himself truly except as he knows himself confronted by God. I want you to see how God confronts him through Daniel. Verse 27, he says, therefore, your majesty, that's not interpretation, that's confrontation. There's a therefore there that he's going to apply to it. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. In other words, dude, if I were you, I would repent right here, right now. I'd get right with God. Now, how many of you think Nebuchadnezzar did that at that point? He didn't. That's not his MO. He's impressed. He's listening. But he's not going to change right away. He should. Daniel was right. God would have prolonged his prosperity. Isaiah 55, 7 gives the same promise, basically. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. But here's what I want you to see. Daniel didn't just give the king revelation, information. He gave him compassionate confrontation. That's the kind of counsel that must be given to anyone who's in sin. Compassionate confrontation, where you lovingly, gently, but firmly get up in their grill and tell them what's up. It's a Galatians 6 verse 1 kind of compassionate confrontation. Do you know that verse? Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Compassionate confrontation. This isn't blind compassion where you close your eyes and you're reluctant to say anything about what's going on in that person's life. 
We're not called to be a spiritual ostrich with our head in the sand, pretending that no bad things are happening, nor is this aggressive opposition. See, see, there are some people who kind of pride themselves in being sin sniffers, where they say, yeah, that's what I'm called to be. I'm God's spiritual sin sniffer. I'm the fault finder. And I'm just ready to go out and, and cut people down at every turn. No, you must have the right context for this kind of confrontation, and that context is relationship. You just don't walk up to someone and spew loveless, stinging words. You have no right. But if you have a relationship that's been established, you have both a right and a responsibility to lovingly confront. And I'll tell you, I believe what's lacking more and more in family life in the home is oftentimes children are just left to do whatever they want because many parents, so many of them are afraid that if they discipline them or they, they confront them, then maybe their kids won't like me. And what we have to remember is that our primary role is not to be cool or to be fun. Our primary role is to train up our children in the way of Christ. Listen to this. This is from the Houston Police Department. They posted an article entitled, How to Ruin Your Children. And they gave a list of several things. I'll share just three. Number one, begin with infancy to give them the they want. Number three, never give him any spiritual training. Let him wait until he's 21 and let him decide for himself. Number five, Pick up everything he leaves lying around so he'll be experienced in throwing responsibility on everyone else. When I read that, I thought that's Nebuchadnezzar. Like he's so powerful, but he's spoiled. He's so childish. And so Daniel moves from revelation to confrontation in verse 27. And before we move on, I'll say that is part of the job of a pastor. Part of the job, not, not all of it, Part is to nourish and to feed, but if necessary, to confront. And the Word of God, just through sermons, will do that. Paul writes to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 5, and he reserves a little section there for church leaders, and he tells them, encourage the disheartened, help the weak. But then he adds this, warn the idle and disruptive. That's the confronting part. He tells them you have a dual role, to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Martin Luther put it this way, a preacher must be both a soldier and a shepherd. He must nourish, defend, and teach, but he must have teeth in his mouth and be able to bite. Daniel could bite. He did it softly, gently, but he did it. He says, therefore, your majesty, I urge you, turn from your sins. Do it now. This is also the duty of every Christian, not just every pastor, not just prophets in the Old Testament. Every Christian, I believe, has this obligation. Jesus confronted Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, even his own disciples. The apostle Paul confronted legalists, false teachers, Peter, even Barnabas, even the churches that he wrote to. But though it's the obligation of every Christian, make sure you meet the qualifications. We find the qualifications in that verse we read, Galatians 6.1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, 
you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted? There's four qualifications in that verse. Number one, you need the right basis. You who live by the Spirit needs to be a saved, Spirit-filled, Spirit-directed individual and approach. Number two, it needs to be the right motive. You who live by the Spirit should restore that person. doesn't say you should punish that person, condemn that person, or make that person feel really bad. Restore. Number three, you need the right attitude. Restore that person gently. You are not the gospel Gestapo, okay? There is no such role in the body of Christ. Restore them gently. And then it says the right precaution. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. You approach with the humility of a forgiven sinner. You're approaching someone who is overtaken in sin, but you approach them with the humility of a forgiven sinner. There's a great story, it's over a century old, of a Swiss evangelist, a rather famous one at the time, by the name of Cesar Milan. Not Cesar Milan, the dog whisperer, but this is the Swiss evangelist. And uh, he approached a young woman on a train, and he very directly, but very gently said to her, I hope that you're a saved woman. I hope that you're going to heaven. And this woman was taken back by this. She kind of bristled at it and didn't appreciate it. But then he said again, very directly but very gently, I mean you no offense, I just want to make sure that you're going to heaven. Three weeks later, that same woman found the evangelist and she says, I haven't been able to get this conversation out of my mind. How do I find Christ? And he said to her, you have nothing of merit, just come as you are. Out of that experience, that woman by the name of Charlotte Elliott wrote a song that maybe you recognize. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bids me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Revelation in compassionate confrontation. Question, will that change a person? If you approach with, with revelation, truth, and compassion, will that change a person? Maybe. Sometimes it will, sometimes it won't. But you've done your job. You've delivered the goods, and now it's up to the Holy Spirit. That's his job. So we go from the revelation to a powerful king and the confrontation to a vulnerable king. Notice third, the humiliation of a prideful king. Verse 28 says all this, okay? All that Daniel has said to this point happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace. So a whole year has passed now. You can forget a lot that's happened in a year, can't you? Something that grabs your attention at first can, can fade very quickly, and you can become desensitized after a year. So here's my question. Why the delay? Why didn't God fulfill this dream immediately on Nebuchadnezzar? Why? Why would God wait 12 months? I'll spell it for you. M-E-R-C-Y. Mercy. 
God was being merciful. God gave 12 months time, an entire year, for this guy to heed the warning that God had given him through Daniel in verse 27. It's the same reason why God waited 400 years before he judged the Amorites by bringing the children of Israel into their land. It's the same reason God waited 120 years after Noah preached that ancient civilization before the flood. It's the same reason the message God gave to Jonah for the Ninevites was 40 days and yet Nineveh will be destroyed. And it's the same reason God is patient with some of you. 2 Peter 3 verse 9. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. So after 12 months, he's walking on the roof of the palace. And look at verse 30. He says, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my power for the glory of my majesty? Puffed up with pride. He's full of himself. Now, I'll say from a human perspective, he was correct. We've talked in this series about how magnificent Babylon was, perhaps the largest city in the ancient world, walls 355 feet high, 60 miles in circumference, guard stations posted every 45 feet. The Greek historian Herodotus tells us that the, the thickness of the walls were 80 to 85 feet. Chariot races took place on top of the walls of the city. Besides that, you might be familiar that set of the seven wonders of the ancient world, one of those, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, stood in the center of the city where it could be seen from miles away. It was so impressive that Alexander the Great, 200 years later, planned to move the entire emperor, the entire empire, to Babylon. And so, a year later, he's walking on top of the roof of his palace, walking in pride. And you'll notice in the next verse, the clock of God's judgment strikes midnight. Verse 31. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. Talk about all of a sudden. This is what's decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately. God was so patient, but when God's judgment comes, it comes. And it came. Immediately. What had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven. And his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Wow. God will not share his glory with another. He said that. Now he shows that. Nebuchadnezzar is reduced to the level of an animal. You know, there are physical laws in our universe. Gravity is one of them. Let something go out of your hand, it drops to the ground. Jump off a building, no matter how much you think you want to fly, you're going to fall. Gravity is going to bring you down. You may not like that law, but that's what it is. But there are spiritual laws that are just as powerful in their cause and effect as physical laws. And one of them is God hates pride. And he will eventually deal with it in this life or in the judgment to come. 
God opposes the proud. And so we see here this bizarre form of psychotic hysteria known in medical terminology as insania zoanthropica, or more precisely, boanthropy, where a man believes he's an ox. Now, believe it or not, Nebuchadnezzar's case is not unique. Several years ago, R.K. Harrison, a medical doctor, reported a similar affliction in a British institution. Let me read to you from one of his reports. The patient was in his early 20s. His daily routine consisted of wandering around the magnificent lawns of the institution. His custom was to pluck up and eat handfuls of grass as he went along. The only physical abnormality noted consisted of the lengthening of his hair and a coarse thickening condition of the fingernails. Without institutional care, this patient would have manifested precisely the same physical conditions as those mentioned in Daniel chapter 4, verse 33. A modern example of what Nebuchadnezzar went through. But now we take you to the best part of the story, and we find this a lot in the book of Daniel, where it's like things are just plunging deeply, and then at the end of the chapter, it turns out good. In verse 34, here's the best part. It's the restoration of a humbled king. The restoration of a humbled king. Nebuchadnezzar's writing in the first person. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. Notice, his dominion is an eternal dominion, not mine. His kingdom endures from generation to generation, not mine. All the people of the earth are regarded as nothing. That would include this king. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out. Up to this point, they wouldn't have anything to do with him. The only way they could treat mental illness in those days was to put the guy out. I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all of his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Let the last part of that verse sink in. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. In Luke 18, Jesus said, everyone who humbles themselves will be exalted, and everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled. And we see that here. Nebuchadnezzar exalted himself. He was humbled. Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself when he looked up to heaven, submitted himself in faith to God, and now he is exalted. There is one attitude that will make God your enemy, and that is pride. And the only cure is repentant humility. Three times this verse is mentioned in Scripture. I guess it must be important. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Disease, pride. Cure, humility. 
brothers who grew up on a farm. One brother stayed on the farm, the other left the farm, got educated, became prominent in politics, was well known in the community. The prominent brother one day went back to the farm to, to visit his farmer brother, and the prominent educated brother said to his farmer brother, you know, you really ought to leave the farm. You ought to make a name for yourself and, and hold your head up high in this world. They were standing outside as he said this, so the farmer put his arm around his brother. He pointed out and he said, you see those fields of grain? Look very, very closely and notice that only the empty heads stand up. Only the empty heads stand up. Those that are well-filled always bow low. Humility. And I would say it's better to recognize this now in reading the story than to experience the tragedy that Nebuchadnezzar experienced in the story. I mean, if God hates pride, and pride is a barrier to God's blessing, then humble yourselves. Cultivate humility. You say, Joel, how do I cultivate humility? I want to quickly share with you four actions you can take in your life that will actually help you become a more humble person. It will cultivate humility. Number one, pray. I don't just mean pray for humility. I mean just pray. See, when you pray, what you're saying is, I can't do this alone. I need God's help. The opposite of a prayerful person is a prideful person. A prideful person says, I don't need God. I, I can handle this. I was raised right. I can do this alone. A prayerful person is dependent on God. So you pray. Number two, worship. Worship authentically. Because when you authentically worship, the focus isn't on you, the focus is on him. You're saying, God, I'm making this about you. I'm thinking about your greatness. I'm telling you how great you are. Authentic worship doesn't say, well, I don't really like that song. That song's too fast. I like a different style of music. It's not about you. You sing it to him. Uh, number three, encouragement. Encouragement. Find someone you know and encourage them. Because when you encourage someone, it means that you've studied them. You've hung out with them long enough to know the, the things that are worth encouraging them for. Again, the focus isn't on you. What do you think about me? Do you like the way that I dress? Do you like the way? No. Focus on them. Prayer, worship, encouragement. Here's the fourth. Service. Perform a task that isn't in your job description. We love the job description, don't we? We tell HR, it's not my job. It's not my job description. Hey, will you pick up that piece of paper? My job. Why, why would I do that? Well, maybe because it's, it's there and it needs picked up. So, so do something that, that's not assigned to you. I'll tell you, those four actions, prayer, worship, encouragement, and service, are ways to cultivate a humble spirit. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. In closing, you'll notice that the restoration began for Nebuchadnezzar in verse 34 when he raised his eyes to heaven. That's faith. That's surrender. The smartest thing you could ever do if you haven't done it before is to surrender your life to Christ. The sooner you do it, the better, the smarter you are. 
you ever hear the story about the four men in a private airplane? One of them was the pilot, and then there was a minister, a genius, and a Boy Scout. The pilot left his seat, and he went to the three other passengers, and he says, boys, the plane's going down, and there's only three parachutes left, but there's four of us. The pilot strapped one on and says, I've got a wife and three kids, and he jumped out, saved himself. Two parachutes left. The genius stands up and says, I'm the smartest in the world. Everybody needs me. Strapped one on, jumped out. There's one parachute left. The minister turns to the Boy Scout and he very sadly says, there's only one parachute left. I've lived a long life. You're young. You take it. I'll go down with the plane. The Boy Scout smiled and said, relax, Pastor. The smartest guy in the world just jumped out of the plane with my backpack. Smart. D.L. Moody said, be humble or stumble. In this case, be humble or splat. Humble yourself before God. Say, Lord, I need you. I need you. Let's pray. God, you have a way of humbling us. And God, the reality is we don't like it. A pride is the oldest sin, and there's not a person in here who has not struggled with it at one level or another. You tell us so clearly that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. So God, I pray that we would bring ourselves low so that you may be lifted up. God, would we not seek glory for ourselves, but would we give you the glory that you deserve? And your word tells us the upside-down way of your kingdom is that when we humble ourselves, we actually are exalted. We see it clearly in the person of Jesus. Philippians tells us that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taking the nature, the form of a servant. And that he died on a cross so that our sins might be forgiven. He hung naked on a cross, the ultimate act of humility. And God, I pray that Jesus' humility, which resulted in our salvation, would be a gospel message that if there's anyone in here today who has not accepted that, that you sent Jesus to die on a cross for their sins. And that if we would put our faith and trust in you, that you would forgive us of all sins. You would give us the gift of eternal life. If there's anyone who has never made that decision, God, please, humble them today. And in humility to say, I receive that gift into my life. Lord, for anybody who needs to be obedient to Christ through the waters of baptism, if anybody needs to humble themselves and and make Bachelor Creek their church home or humble themselves and say, God, I need you and I need some other people to be praying for me, God, I pray that they would have the boldness to make that decision today. God, may every single one of us live lives of humility. So like John said, we might decrease and you might increase. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.